We've talked a little bit this morning about church planting, and now we're going to ask the question, why do we do it? Why church planting? What good word might we leave our brothers and sisters in Bartlesville? And before I read God's word for us, be sure to fill out these green Trinity Connect cards and put those in the offering plate after the sermon. Thank you. First Peter. It is a book that is written to a group of Gentile Christians between the Mediterranean and the Black Sea, north of Palestine is Syria. Northwest of Syria is an area we know now today as Turkey. And years ago, between the Mediterranean and the Black Sea, there was a scattering of people in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And these are the words that Peter says to them. Would you please stand as we read God's Word from 1 Peter chapter 1. I'll read down through verse 9. This is the Word of the Lord. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of of your souls. The grass withers and the flowers fade, friends, but God's word stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. My name is Blake Altman. I'm the husband to Lauren. I'm the daddy to Andrew, Annie, Bennett, and Augie. And I happen to also be the pastor of this church. Who are you? For those of you who I don't know yet, it's good to see you. For those of you who I know really well, it's good to be together. Who are you? Philosophers tell us that that question is actually the most fundamental question you can ever ask yourself. Who are you? And it's an important question for us to ask as a church because we are about to send 50 people to Bartlesville, Oklahoma to plant a church. It will not be part of our church. It'll be their own church. It'll be called Hope Church. And it's an important question for us to answer because the reason why we church, 
plant is because of who we are. And Peter writes a letter to a group of Gentiles who are scattered all over Asia Minor and modern-day Turkey, and they're going through persecution and trial, and they're going through difficult times. And he begins the book reminding them of who they are. And he tells them three very, very simple things about who they are. Beneath the style, beneath the makeup, beneath the profession, beneath the family relationships, beneath your ethnicity, beneath everything. Who are you? And Peter says that if you're a Christian, you're three things. Number one, you're chosen. Number two, you're scattered. And number three, you're an alien. You're a sojourner. You're a foreigner. And as we commission Bartlesville this morning, I want to remind Bartlesville and I want to remind Trinity of who we are. We are not a style. We are not a church. We are not a particular ethnicity. We are not a particular location. Although we have to fit our context, yes. We are primarily, not even before we're husbands and wives and neighbors and friends, whatever political party you may happen to be, you're fundamentally three things. You're chosen, you're scattered, and you're an alien. So let's look at what Peter has to say. First, who are you? Number one, you're chosen. The word Peter uses for chosen means to pick out. It means to select out of a number. It's the, it's the same word that he uses in Ephesians chapter 1 when he says that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were writing a letter to you as your pastor and I were trying to encourage you, I would not immediately think to say, remember that you're chosen. Literally, it says that they are the elect exiles scattered throughout this area of Asia Minor. If I were Peter, I probably would have said, hey, you know what? Hang in there. It's going to get better. Listen, just endure. I know it's tough. It's just a season, but hang in there. But that's not what Peter says. Peter says, number one, first of all, remember, Christian, you're elect. And I'm fully aware of the fact that that doctrine or theme makes some of your hairs on the back of your neck stand up because you're not real sure what to do with this language about election in the Bible. And I want to say to you, that's okay. But Peter is trying to remind us that it harkens back to the Old Testament when God called the son of a moon worshiper, Abraham. And he said, Abraham, I'm going to choose you. It wasn't because Abraham was looking to be chosen. God chose Abraham. And he said, I'm going to make out of you a great nation. And I will make you a blessing to the world. And Peter's connecting these folks. First of all, you're chosen. You are connected. You are part of the people of God that God has chosen out. Um, one of the reasons why, I, personally, that this, this doctrine, if I can just be really frank with us, feels so offensive to so many in our community is because we have been raised to believe. We have been raised to believe. In fact, the whole of the Enlightenment, which is the undergirding of our nation and therefore our education system, presumes, presumes, that we must have complete and total control of our destiny. 
Now, let me just say very carefully, that is true for the way that we have chosen to run this country, this particular country in which we live. We vote. We have a say in who rules our land, whatever party you may happen to affiliate with. And um, quite frankly, I don't really care that much. The important point is that the way that we view our social constructs in this country do not necessarily mean that that is the way you are to view your spiritual constructs. In other words, let me say it another way. The way that you understand your relationship with one another as fellow creatures in the world does not mean that is the way that we as creatures are to view our relationship with the Creator. In fact, it was this creature-creator distinction that Satan, in the very, very beginning, back in Genesis chapter 3, tried to break down so that Adam would sin against the Lord. Remember what he said to Eve? Did God, did he really say? Like, why are you listening to him? Don't you know that he's afraid that you can become like him? It is quite literally the oldest trick in the book to view God as a creature just like we view our fellow man as a creature. And our decision to hold one another accountable as a civilization stems from the fact that no man can be trusted to rule alone. But that does not, does not mean, that does not mean that God, who is infinitely good and holy and just and righteous altogether, can't be trusted to rule alone. Do you trust Him to control your life? Not as a robot, as your king. Do you trust him? Do you trust yourself enough to control your life? Or are you able to lay down your thirst for control to one who is infinitely good and beautiful and precious? So how do you know that? Well, what does the evidence in Scripture say? It's one thing for somebody to say to you, I'm going to control your life and you have no way to trust Him. But what does the evidence of the Bible say? It says that while we were sinners, what did He do? He didn't just put, say that He loved us. He showed us that He loved us by giving His life for us, by becoming for us sin, so that we who are dead in our trespasses and sins might be made the very righteousness of God. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It is tempting to entertain a too high view of ourself and a too low view of God. Unless you understand that God is infinitely good and beautiful and just. And how do you know that? Because He gave Himself for you. He actually did what is the unthinkable. He died for you. You, if you had been Adam or Eve and he had called you, he would have died just for you. That's how much he loves you. To to state it another way, the doctrine of God's election in our life is the doctrine that God does not leave us to the demise of our own personal choices. Because the Bible says that if you give us the choice, we will choose, yes, we will choose to run from him. And if Adam hadn't sinned in the garden, I would have, and so would have you. And this doctrine, every time it is given to us in Scripture, it's amazing to me that every time that it is given, it is given to Christians to remind them of God's love for them. It is not given to tell those who aren't yet Christians, well, I'm sorry, we're better than you because we're chosen. No, the Bible says that 
The reason you're chosen is because God set his love on you. You did nothing to earn it. It's not like God saw your good works and said, I'm going to reward you with my grace. No, God gave you grace. And as a result of that grace, you begin to live in to who you are. And that, Peter says, is strength for us when we endure trials. And for Bartlesville, there are many trials going on in families, just like there are many trials going on in your life today. But for Bartlesville especially, there's a trial that they are, by their own volition, you're crazy, walking in to this thing called church planting. And you need to remember, first of all, that you're chosen. And it has huge implications for church planting. There are at least three that I'll mention. The first is your motivation. Do you remember when you were first gripped in the heart by God's love for you as his chosen ones, that he sings over you his love, that he opened your heart to believe, that all of a sudden what seemed foreign to you in the gospel and this stuff about Jesus dying for you, that you were a sinner, it seemed off-putting, but then one day became beautiful to you. Maybe over a period of time it became beautiful. And all of a sudden it became like wings, your wings were unfloral and you could fly because you realized you were right in your relationship with your father. That motivation, the motivation of love and of joy compels us to church plant. It is such good news that it humbles us to the dust and it makes us at the same time extremely humble because we didn't do anything to deserve our salvation and incredibly bold like a lion to be able to share this good news with other people. Both are true at the same time because it's about what he has done for you. It changes your motivation. It also changes the content of what we preach. It is very tempting to preach to you things that you want to hear. What Paul says is the tickling of the ears. But we preach one thing, and that's Christ and him crucified. It is the beauty of our need for the gospel week after week after week after week. And when the gospel, Christ's righteousness for sinners like me and like you who are made his children by faith, when we become his and we are working out our salvation with fear and trembling, already saved, justified by faith, yes, but becoming more and more like Jesus the older that we get, When that becomes what we preach, it is enough. It is foolishness to the world, but that is what we proclaim. And the moment that we stop proclaiming the gospel is the moment that we inject like an IV pump, cyanide into our church plants. We say that grace changes everything because it is the only message that we have. The only hope you have for redemption is because of the grace of God. Third, it changes our metrics. If we forget the doctrine of election and Christ's love for you, then when things go great, when you've got these amazing blessings and breakthroughs and baptisms and buildings and it's going crazy, it's great. You, become to get, you begin to get smug because you think, you know what? We know how to run a church. And we did it this way and we did it that way. And it compelled people to come because of what we did. And you get smug. And friends... The 85% of this area in the Bible Belt of the U.S., the 85% of people who don't regularly go to church, they're not impressed by that. 
The only thing that compels somebody to believe is the good news of Jesus, of his love for us. It will either make you smug or on the other hand, on those weeks when you feel like, man, nobody is here, community groups are struggling, the pastor, gosh, my Lord, give him some coffee. He needs something. Listen, like you have these weeks where it's hard and you begin to despair and you begin to think, well, if we could just do it right, if we could just move this, if we could just change that, then, then people will come. No, you preach the gospel. That is what people need. That is the food that they need. You can't give them anything more than that. The gospel, the doctrine of our election changes our motivation. It changes our content, and it changes the metrics. And Peter says to the suffering church, to the elect of God, that you are part of my people, not because of anything you did, not because of anything you brought to the table, not because of your name or your resources, not because you have all your theology figured out. You are my people because I called you because I loved you first. You're chosen. Second, you're scattered. He says to the elect exiles, the word scattered in Greek is the word diaspora. It means that uh, to be spread out, to be scattered about. Peter is writing to a group of churches who are literally scattered, and he uses this word that's loaded with theological meaning because he is reminding us that we are part of some body much bigger than just the local 2018 area of churches in which you particularly reside. He is saying, you know what, you hearken all the way back to the Old Testament. When Israel was called out of Israel, out of Uh, the promised land, and they were in exile in Babylon. They were exiles there. And while you were exiles, what is it that he told them to do? He said, listen, you are to be exiles, and you are to make your land beautiful. You are to settle there. You are to marry. You are to build houses. You are to help the city in which you flourish, Jeremiah 29, flourish because you are using your gifts and talents there. And though you are scattered about, you are one people. And we plant churches because we want to reach the lost, though we're scattered about. And you can see from behind me that in 2006, just within our small, very small, very corner of the world and our denomination, the PCA, you can see that today, how many people are there? There are 1,300 people that are worshiping in PCA churches. Ten years ago, there, are, there were 500. And just through planting churches over time, the church has grown. Like, we only see a couple hundred people here on Sunday, but there are 1,300 of us together every Sunday. In South Tulsa, in Bartlesville, in Grove, we're all together. One church, a beautiful church. And we are just one small pocket of a much, much larger place called Christendom. And it's amazing to see how when you plant churches, other churches thrive and they grow. And we do so because we believe that that is the way God wants us to win people in Oklahoma for Christ. The United States continues to become more urban and suburban, and small towns are drying up. And when young people look for work and they look for education, where do they go? They come into the cities. And when they begin to have children, where do they live? Mm, They live in Owasso because they want more house and they want more land. And here we are. And if you were to have one church that grew by 20 people, and then you added 20 people every year, 
And then you added 20 people again. You can imagine that kind of arithmetic. You can do the math. After 20 years, you'd have 400 people in your church. But if you planted one church, that planted one church, that planted one church year by year by year, that just grew by 20 people. If you planted churches that then planted churches that grew by 20 people, within years, you'd have over a million people. The same amount of time, exponential growth. And I fully recognize that that kind of exponential growth is not realistic. But it's interesting to think about the way that church plants work. They draw younger people in to be elders and leaders of a church. They may not have the opportunity to lead in other contexts and situations. They allow you to use your gifts. If you're in a large church, some of us, Lord, we need, like, we need you to help us set up chairs. And you can use your gift if, as a chair setter upper if you didn't have uh, this church to help you do that. Or to greet people. Or to serve as a community group leader. So on and so forth. You get the picture. Church plants help revitalize not only their areas, not only their people, but they actually help revitalize existing churches. In fact, did you know that a church that's been in existence far longer than Trinity is actually using our office space right now for worship at Trinity House, in the back of Trinity House? They are using that space right now to worship in and the reason why we're glad to let them do that is because we want to strengthen other churches. We want, if they preach the gospel, we want to help a thousand flowers to bloom. We want to be very intentional about it. Not only do we lead with intentionality, we think that church planting is the way to plant churches, to grow the church, to do mission, but we also think it's a way to show unity. As you saw behind me in the last 10 years, through our partnership with Christ Presbyterian Church and River Oaks and Ethos and uh, Pacto de Gracia in East Tulsa and soon-to-be New City Fellowship in North Tulsa and our church plant in Grove and our church plant in Bartlesville. There are 1,300 of us worshiping on a Sunday. It's beautiful. And we're unified together. And not only are we unified within our particular denomination, again, in a very small, small room in a much larger house of Christendom, but we partner with other churches in Owasso. It's a way to show our unity, to confess our faith together, once for all delivered to the saints. And church planting, rather than us worry about the color of carpet we're going to have, although I do, quite frankly, hope that's a problem one day because we have a building. Rather than us worry about the kind of stained glass or the kind of music, we're concerned about how do we help churches thrive. And therefore, it's a tremendous focus of intentional resourcing, and vision. You're scattered. Christianity is more, much more than just a personal faith. On this earth, we are part of a community that spans geography and even spans through time. And while Christianity is intensely personal, it is communal. And please do not ever forget the importance of the community in your personal devotional life, in your personal growth in the gospel. They go together. They're never meant to be separated. And I know that community groups can be hard because sometimes they're awkward. And you don't always know people there, but would you give them a chance? Throughout this month, we're going to have sign-ups for community groups, and I hope that you'll sign up for a community group, every one of us in this room, and that we begin to come and be part more and more of a community of faith. 
Lastly, not only are we chosen, not only are we scattered, but thirdly, we are alien. Peripetomoi is the word in Greek. An alien is someone who temporarily resides in a host country. Aliens were held in contempt by the natives among whom they dwelled, one scholar says. Paul, uh, Peter here says that they are strangers in a strange land. We see this in the Old, Test- Old Testament when David was about to give the scepter of Israel to his son Solomon. He said, for we are strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were in the days on earth. They are like a shadow. Listen, David said this when he had everything in his kingdom in place. And yet he says we are strangers. Who are we? We are not people who had this beautiful temple and have a place in Palestine. We are primarily strangers, aliens, scattered, chosen. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts towards you. The Apostle Paul said in the Philippians that your primary citizenship is not in Rome. It is not in Philippi. Your primary citizenship, your most basic identity, the thing that defines you more than your career, your family relationships, your identity, is that you are a citizen of heaven. Here we have no lasting city, the author of Hebrews says. But we seek a city that is to come. Here is my prayer, O Lord, David writes. Give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Psalm thirty-nine, twelve. And what is the benefit of remembering this as we plant churches? Well, the implications are very simple. You are not at home here. And though we want this place to flourish, one day it will be renewed and the Lord will reign. It will be beautiful. But right now, we are in between the times, aren't we? Redeemed, but becoming fully human, fully redeemed through the work of Christ. And it therefore should shape our joy and our obedience to Christ. We do not obey Him because of some fear of His rejection. We obey Him because of the presence of His amazing love for us. I may have used this illustration before, so forgive me if I have, but there was a day when Lauren and I, uh, we, were, we lived in New Jersey, and I would sit at the steps of Clio, which is the debate hall at Princeton, and I would look over the campus, and it was a beautiful day when the sun was setting, and there were three groups of students at Princeton. The first group were the legacies. They were the people who thought they belonged there. Their daddy went there, their granddaddy went there, and so on and so forth. And so they walked around with their collars turned up, wearing their J. Crew jeans, if those are even such a thing. You could find them there, I'm sure. And they would walk around, and they would say, I belong here. My daddy went here, my granddaddy went here. I'm a Princetonian. Thank you very much. And then there were people who you could notice them because their backpacks were so full, they'd be hunched over like little humpbacks walking to class, reading a book, stressed out because they were fearful of their professor's rejection. And we called these students the strivers. You had legacies and you had strivers. And the strivers were the ones who worked like crazy to get in. And they could never do enough. They were not the top of the class. They were the, perhaps for the first time in their life, they weren't the smartest kids in the room. And they were frozen with fear of rejection if they didn't do the best they could. They were the strivers. 
always anxious about their performance. And then there was a third group of people, and we called these students the children of grace. And you could tell that they were the students that knew they didn't belong in that school because they were shocked that they got in. And they would walk around campus with smiles on their faces. And they, would, they were the ones who noticed the sunset. And they'd go, look at the sunset. Look at this building. Oh, it's beautiful. Can you believe we're here? It's amazing. And they were the ones who professors would tell us, the chaplains, they would always tell us that at the end of the year, the best theses that were written were always written by the students who were shocked that they got into this school because they wrote without any inhibitions. They wrote because they were so thankful to be in. They weren't fearful of rejection. They were just amazed that they got in. And if that's true of students who go to an Ivy League school, how much more true is it of you, Christian? You're in. And it wasn't because of your performance or your SATs or your essays. He loved you because he loved you. And therefore, oh, legacies, check your heart. You're here because he loves you. He chose you. He sings over you with his love. Oh, strivers, lay your deadly doings down, down at Jesus' feet and trust in him and him alone gloriously complete. As John, John Bunyan once said, run, John, run, the law commands, but it gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us to fly and it gives us wings. Children of grace, this is what we are. This is who we are. Before you say that you are of this profession or you're married to this person or you live in this neighborhood or you belong to this subdivision or you live in this area of Tulsa, you are chosen, you are scattered, and you are alien. And the implications for that are tremendous for church planting because you never forget in all of our church planting who we are. Jesus alone is sufficient to build our lives around. He is our hope. Why is that? Because Jesus was chosen. Jesus was scattered. And Jesus was an alien. Jesus was chosen. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, and he was made manifest in the last times for your sake, Peter says. He was chosen to come into the world for you and for me and to suffer and die. Big time love. Jesus was scattered because he left the presence of his Father in heaven. Why? So that we who were scattered might be brought into his presence and in glory might be brought into the intimacy of the Holy Trinity. That is worth a thousand thoughts of reflection. Jesus brings us in as an alien pushed out in the incarnation to draw us who are dead in our trespasses and sins in. And Jesus is an alien who lived his life among us as somebody different from us because Jesus Christ lived his life among us as someone in a very truthful, very faithful, absolutely perfect way for you. To be the second Adam, to be the perfect sacrifice, to be your motivation for joy, your motivation for delight, the motivation for your happiness is found in what he has done for you. And so we become the hands and feet of Jesus to the world. We plant churches. We love our neighbors. We sacrifice for our spouses. We sacrifice for our children. 
We do everything we can because not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name we give the glory. Chosen, scattered aliens. My name is Blake Altman. Undeserving of the grace of God, bought by the grace of God, and because of that, therefore a Christian. Who are you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have in your love called us to be your children, that you've made a way for us through the death of your own Son, Christ our Lord. And we thank you, Father, that you call us to abide in Christ. We thank you that it was Jesus himself who said in John 15, abide in me and bear much fruit. Why? Because you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. Lord, this mystery of being chosen and yet it being the way we manifest fruit and joy and holiness is so amazing. Help us, Father, to marvel at it as we come in just a moment to your table. Thank you for your presence among us and for your love. Help us. Help Hope Church in Bartlesville. Help Three Rivers and Grove. Help all those churches in our area who preach the gospel to remember our identity as chosen, scattered aliens. For your namesake, we pray. Amen.